Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community and communities create social change. I'm David Peck and this is Face to Face. Lachlan Monroe is the director for the International Development Studies Program at the University of Ottawa, and we met recently and had a great chat. I think you're going to really enjoy this podcast. We talked about evidence-based policy making. We talked about methodological and ideological baggage that donors bring to the table when they when they do development. We talked about the difference between theory and practice and we talked about what's, you know, what's just and what's moral and what's equitable and and what's acceptable uh, as a general rule, you know, sort of this idea that that those kinds of things do sort of cross cultures in every way. And we we talked about um you know, we we covered a lot of ground in this interview. I think you're going to really uh, enjoy it. We we took analogies apart. You know, my brother calls me an analogy snob, actually, but but uh, Lachlan certainly uh, took down a few analogies as well. We talked about gross national happiness. Lachlan was a guest at the uh, Beyond GDP conference that I was involved in a few months ago, and we talked about things like national income accounting and so on. Like I say, we covered a lot of ground. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Uh, check it out. Out. Um, uh, don't forget to check out davidpecklive.com. Uh, my book, Real Change, is incremental, is available now, as is my uh, latest collection of essays called Irreconcilable Differences. Check it out. Thanks again for listening to Face to Face, and stay tuned. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We are joined today by uh, Dr. Lachlan Monroe. He is the director uh, at the School of International Development and Global Studies at the University of Ottawa. Lachlan, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. Yeah, it's uh, I, I every time I interview. Well, I've done. I think you're. I think I just mentioned to you before the tape recorder went on. We're at about 105 interviews, and I think I've said every interview we've had a really interesting guest here today. But but I don't know if that's just because I don't have anything all that creative to say, or if I truly continue to meet really interesting people, and I think it's the latter. So you, you've got quite a history, uh, and, and it sounds like a lot of loves and a lot of interests. You know, you want to talk about Zimbabwe today, maybe we're going to bring that up, some things about evidence and maybe empiricism, maybe we'll get into that mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. debate. But but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your time, too, uh, when you were vice president of IDRC. Uh, International Development Research Council here in Canada. Center. C- yeah. Sorry, Center. Doing some, some, I would imagine, some pretty interesting things. And I'd love to hear a little bit about there versus here, now that you're 
directing this school of development studies. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of those differences. Um, it was a bit of a, a change, but then again, I expected it was going to be a change. I mean, the International Development Research Center is a Canadian federal crown corporation. It's a, a corporation that's owned by the government of Canada, but not run by the government of Canada. So it works at sort of arm's length and it promotes rather than does research uh, in developing countries. So its role is to is to support researchers in and from uh, developing countries to work on practical problems in you know environment, economic policy, uh, social policy, um, technology, that sort of thing. Um, then I moved here and now I'm the director of Canada's largest school of international development studies. Uh, so we have you know about 800 students. 700 undergrads roughly, um, 110 or so master's students and 17 PhD students. Wow. In a brand that's new... That's a big program. That's a big program, yeah. Um, and it's going to get bigger because we're only in the second year of our PhD program. Oh, okay. So, uh, and it's an interdisciplinary uh, PhD that combines the theory of international development with policy and practice of international development. Those are both, both compulsory courses the students have to take. And, um, and it's a bilingual program and it's an interdisciplinary program so, um, and it's designed as an interdisciplinary program from the ground up just like all of our programs. So it's very interesting, uh, very different now being in a university where we're actually doing the teaching and doing some of the research ourselves but Nonetheless, the, uh, the contacts and the experience from my nine years at IDRC have been very uh, valuable. And uh, I've been able, I think, uh, to some extent at least, along with my many Inti colleagues here, to, to link town and gown. Town and gown, nice. Intimately linked, it seems to yeah. me. A lot of connections. What I really need to know, and I think the most important question is, did you have as nice of an office? at the IDRC as you do here at the University of Ottawa. Well, I think... We're surrounded uh, by windows, looking out over Ottawa. It's just gorgeous day. Uh, yeah, you should see the view in January. Yeah, that's probably... Uh, no, actually, all the directors in the Faculty of Social Sciences have uh, the same view, except some of them have a little bit lower, uh, lower view, and, yes. and some yeah. are higher. I'm yeah. in the eighth yeah. floor of a 15-story building, so yeah. Yeah. I got a pretty yeah. good view. Yeah. I, went yeah. to a, I went to the elevator that only went to six floors, and I said, damn it, I'm in the wrong building. No. no, no, no. <laughs> so tell me, Lachlan, about uh, theory and practice, or theory versus practice, or theory over practice. Yeah, this is the eternal debate. It I is. mean, the way we've structured our programs here at University of Ottawa is we like to say we combine theory and practice. Um, but that, when you say you combine theory and practice, it's always at the risk of creating a dualism. There's theory and there's practice. Mm -hmm, and I'm mm -hmm. just finishing review of an article uh, that sort of uh, proposed article for a Canadian journal that's criticizing universities for teaching too much theory and not enough practice. Right, right. Um, the person never says what they mean by theory or practice. Interesting. Um, and, and never defines what's meant by practical. Now, a, a colleague of mine uh, at the school made a very good point the other day uh, to me, and she said, uh, you know, teaching good writing skills, good clear writing skills, is an important practical skill, but you can teach that in a course that's labeled development theory, or sure. you can teach that in a course that's labeled methodology, or you can teach that in a course that deals with substance, like, uh, you know, environmental issues in, in Africa. So um, we like to combine theory and practice. Those of us who teach in the PhD program, there's those of us who teach the policy and practice course. I teach that. There are my colleagues who teach the theory course. But we always have every year a good discussion at the beginning, trying to not so much delineate the two courses or separate them, but to try to build intersections between them and try to show the students how what they learn in the theory is actually very useful and practical in analyzing concrete situations. Do you, would you say that uh, your, you know, my background's philosophy, uh, would you say that a more academic program on development is more about the philosophy of development to some degree? I mean, you know, a course like policy in practice, your course, I mean, mm -hmm. obviously could be incredibly practical if yeah. you were a person who was going to be sitting behind a desk, hanging out and helping to develop policy. I mean, mm. you need good writing skills to to develop good policy, right? And so, you need good analytical abilities good analytical to, to dissect exactly. a problem. And, yeah, and different than, like I think often when we think of practical, uh, we think of carpentry, right? Mm. Carving some mm. chess pieces. 
You know, that's practical mm. work, isn't it? You know, or, well, or, or you know, as an agricultural, you know, you've got the hoe out, you're planting seeds. Well, I used to work in East Africa and Uganda and Kenya at that time had uh, the highest rate of deaths by traffic accidents in the world. Um, and uh, it was very interesting because Kenya generally had good roads at that time on which you could drive very quickly and Uganda had very bad roads on which you couldn't drive very quickly but they both had horrendously high mortality rates uh, from traffic accidents so um, you know a theoretical training in, in, in research methods helps you figure out well okay here's a problem high rates of death from traffic accidents uh, let's break it down. Mm. Is it safety regulations? Is it the role of the police? Is it the state of the roads? Is it speeding? Is it alcohol and uh, driving? Uh, what is behind this horrendously high rate of, of carnage on the roads of East Africa? So, you know, uh, on one level, that's a very so practical your issue. Point is happening in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an office with yeah. nice, lots of windows. But it's going to have a real practical yeah. implication on the yeah. ground. Yeah, yeah. Do you find that um, your students prefer the dualisms? Uh, our, <laughs> I think, like all our students in, like most students in social sciences, our students don't generally love the research methods courses, but we insist on them. Uh, in our undergraduate program, we make them do a qualitative research, a couple of qualitative research methods courses. We make them do a good old-fashioned statistics, introductory mm -hmm. statistical analysis course. We insist on that. Uh, they have to do a really practical course on uh, project management because if you're going to do, well, I, no matter what you do in life, knowing how to run a project, whether it's in the public or the private or the nonprofit sector, knowing how to run a project is, is, is a useful skill. Um, but yeah, we also have more theoretical courses uh, for them to offer. The students keep telling us they want more of the practical skills. They, um, but sometimes I'm not quite sure what they mean by right, practical right, skills. Right. And you know, it's clear that project management fits into that. But teaching them how to write clearly or teaching them the basics of statistical analysis, I think those are so uh, what immensely they, practical, and important skills. One of the things that I've been sort of hammering on lately. Um, uh, is this idea of listening and you know uh, I do a lot of sleight of hand magic card tricks and coin tricks mm. and things and there was a famous magician who said and I'm sure I've said this on an interview before but said that that you know three things you need to be a good sleight of hand magician mm. you need to practice and mm. you need to practice and you, you need, need to, to practice. practice and so I've taken that and said as a good development worker in my classroom mm. at Humber College I said you need to listen and oh um, you need to listen and by the way you need to listen yeah how much development is listening? How much of it, from your experience, you've got, you know, on the ground, you've got the practical experience. Mm -hmm. Now you've got the theoretical. You're bringing the two together. We talked about connections with the IDRC. How much of all this is about just me sitting on this side and listening to the Zimbabwean on the other side or the Cambodian on the other side of the table and trying to bridge that gap? Well, that's one of the great challenges because uh, donors tend to arrive in these countries with a preset yes. package of tools. Nice. Uh, which uh, Jim Armstrong calls the standard model um, in his book uh, Bright Spots that was published about two years ago. And uh, he's a guy you should interview, by the way. What's his name? Uh, Jim Armstrong, The Governance Network. I'll, I'll put a link to that in, in, in the, uh, the blurb on your interview as yeah. well. Bright, Bright Spots is Bright the name Spots of the book? is the name of the book, Macmillan, Paul Grave Macmillan. Um, Anyways, uh, donors tend to arrive in these countries with uh, what Jim Armstrong calls the standard model of, you know, results-based management and breaking the problem down. But they also arrive with a, 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 an implicit cultural or ideological toolkit mm -hmm. uh, related to words like good governance and human rights um, and institutions. Uh, these are all the buzzwords of, of development these days. Uh, and it's often hard to translate some of those words into um, other languages. I mean, I, I, I teach the policy and practice course at this university in French, and I have a great deal of trouble translating phrases like evidence-based policymaking right. into French. Right. In fact, the major article on French on that topic is called Le Evidence-Based Policymaking. Pourquoi s'y intéresser? 
you know, the, even even the experts in France use the English in right, the French. Sure, now, sure. I imagine, and, and French and English are languages that are quite close in, in many respects. I mean, imagine trying to uh, translate all these concepts into Khmer or Shona. Oh, there are no Khmer words for certain things. I yeah, mean, and I, I remember yeah. I remember in, in Zimbabwe uh, 20 years ago, uh, we started looking into how do you talk about child rights in Zimbabwe and and in deep rural Shona speaking areas they said well they had real trouble with this notion of rights that children had rights but they had a perfectly clear understanding that parents have a duty to look after their children or guardians have a elders of the community have a duty to look after their children so that plays well into the rights uh, sure. logic where sure. every uh, rights there's a duty bearer for every rights holder. So instead of emphasizing the rights holder, which is what UNICEF headquarters wanted us to do, we started talking about the duties of the duty bearers of the parents and the elders uh, of the community. So um, that was a good example, I think, of us listening. We, we, you know, we could have tried to invent a Shona word for rights and try to ram it through and, and you know, see what the heck came of it. Um, but I think a lot of donor organizations have difficulty um, because they arrive with so much baggage. The methodological baggage of results-based management and then the implicit ideological and cultural baggage that's embedded in words like good governance, institutions, human rights. And it's important to listen to, to the people at the other end to, to see how they come at those same issues. Because almost every culture or every culture I've ever met has some sort of sense of what's just, what's moral, what's equitable, what's acceptable. Uh, and uh, I think that's pretty universal in, in human society. The question is, well, how do you bridge the gap between those notions of justice or acceptability or equity and our concepts of human rights and democracy and good governance? Yeah, I mean, it's so cliche to say the white, the white guy in, in a culture like that mm. tends to be seen as the person with the answers. Well, they're rich, they, they made it, they, they, they figured it out. Oh, so. but there's increasing skepticism Good. in the developing world oh, of, so uh, yeah. uh, about that model. And, and, you know, the rise of China over the last 20, 30 years uh, has made people question that. I mean, you know, China has grown at an average of, what, 8 or 9% GDP growth. I know GDP isn't everything, but listen, eight or nine mm -hmm. percent GDP mm -hmm. growth over a generation transforms a society, an economy, a nation completely. And it has transformed China, and the world has seen that. And at the same time, you know, the United States and Western Europe, Japan, Canada, we've been bumbling on, and in a good year, we get 2.5 percent <laughs> GDP right, growth. And, right. you know, th that m simple fact alone causes a lot of people, a lot of educated people in developing countries to say, well, hmm, your recipe gets me 2.5 percent, and their recipe gets me 8 or 9 percent. Yeah, I think I'll go with that one. Yeah. I yeah. may discount why, what you say as a result. Why isn't GDP everything? Well, GDP uh, measures the value of goods and services exchanged uh, in a society. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch of assumptions there. Only things that are exchanged in a market count. Um, you know, the British economist uh, Alfred Marshall told the famous story about the English gentleman who, uh, he, his wife died, he was a widow, and being an English gentleman, he didn't know how to do the housekeeping, so he hired a woman. Other things being equal, the British economy grew as a result of him hiring that woman. Uh, the English gentleman then fell in love with his housekeeper, married her, stopped paying her, and GDP suffered as a result. But the amount of work done in the house was the same all the way through. Uh, so there's the limitations of what's produced and exchanged in the market, and you know, the productive activities inside the household are not counted in GDP. That's number one. The feminists have been banging on that drum with very good reason for 40 years. Um, GDP, the, whenever I teach national income accounting, I say GDP or GNP are almost unique in economics because it's the only time we tell our students that the gross is more important than the net. Throughout economics, you're, it's drilled into you that net is more important than gross. You don't, we're not interested in the firm's net total revenue, gross revenue. We're interested in its net revenue. In other words, it's profit. Uh, we're not interested in the gross amount of investment. We're interested in the amount of investment minus depreciation. So that's net investment. We do this in area and area, one area after another in economics. The only area where we forget that 
is in national income accounting where we count gross national product only, net of any damage that that growth does to the environment, to society, to social relations. So full, uh, full, full cost accounting in a sense. There's really. no, G, GDP is not and does not pretend to be, and even its founders, uh, Simon Kuznets, made clear that it was not anything close to full cost accounting. The third uh, reason that GDP isn't everything is, well, Amartya Sen has been saying this for 30 or 40 years, that, you know, um, it only measures our power over commodities. And mm. the valuable things in the world are not just uh, commodities that we can purchase in a market uh, place. The valuable things in life are to be healthy, uh, to be literate and numerate, to have positive social relations with one's family, friends and neighbors and other community members. Um, it's to be healthy, to avoid um, preventable early death. Those are the important things in life, and uh, GDP doesn't measure those. So things. we met. Uh, we met at the Beyond GDP conference in in uh, Toronto and Humber mm -hmm. College just a couple yeah. of months ago. Actually, yep. two two and a half months ago, uh, former Prime Minister Bhutan, Ron Coleman, various academics coming together and practitioners. Actually, mm -hmm. here we go mm -hmm. again through practice to talk about gross national happiness. You've said before to me uh, that that you're a fan of GNH gross national happiness or that that maybe that's not a fair paraphrase or that you're interested in it I'm I'm and a fan of it to the extent that it identifies a very real problem mm, and the very real problem nice. is that GN gross national product or gross domestic product doesn't measure everything that's important for the reasons that I've said the Bhutanese have uh, I mean the king in 1980 came up with this phrase uh, gross national happiness is more important than gross national product. The important thing to note is, is that initially it was just a play on words. He was right. making a rhetorical point. Right. Right. And for years, indeed decades, the concept sort of lay dormant, got no traction in the Bhutanese government or anywhere else. It was a sort of a intellectual curiosity right. that lay around. In the last 15 years, since about 2000, the year 2000, the Bhutanese government's gotten very serious about promoting gross national happiness as the sort of official governing ideology of the Bhutanese state. Uh, and so they're saying, yes, material prosperity is important, but also uh, the preservation of the national culture is important, the preservation of the natural environment uh, is important, the psychological well-being of the citizens of the country uh, is important. All those things are to my mind, uh, unobjectionable. I, I have a, a little bit of a worry about the, the way the Bhutanese interpret preserving the national culture because they have a very particular idea of what the national culture right, is. Right, right. And it's essentially the culture of uh, four or five valleys in western Bhutan. Well, Bhutan's a very plural uh, society, as the former prime minister admitted in mm -hmm, his mm -hmm. speech, that, you know, there's nine or ten or eleven different languages, not dialects, mutually unintelligible languages spoken in Bhutan and uh, three major religions, Buddhism, Bonism, Hinduism, and lots of syncretic combinations of them. And trying to say there is a single national culture to be preserved is, well, I, 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 have, my, I have my doubts and skepticism could, could about that. some problems. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, you know, Naomi Klein says that the free market is kind of, you know, wired up like a crack addict. I mean, is is that why it's so difficult for the the overarching sort of ideological nature or edge to the free market, to capitalism, to actually think about the other in these ways? Because isn't that really what we're talking about? We're talking about an economic system that's going to take other people into consideration, which it seems to not do, really, for the most part. Well, there are capitalisms and there are capitalisms, <laughs> uh, both historically and today. And, you know, I think you can see, um, you can see a sort of... Uh, aggressive state capitalism in countries like Russia, uh, which is a model I'm not terribly happy with. It's based around a national security state, a very nationalist, um, at times borderline racist ideology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you have a, a different type of, very different type of capitalism in China, which is, uh, you know, uh, 
very creative in some ways and has brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty over the last 20 or 30 years, an undeniable achievement. But it has bought it at the price of what? You know, massive destruction of the, of the physical environment, the groundwater, the soils, the air um, in China. Uh, and then you have, you know, the Swedish Nordic capitalism, which is, you know, more sharing and caring. Um, and then you have um, intermediate capitalisms like you see in the UK or Canada and the United States. So um, I'm, I'm one of these guys who always looks and says, okay, let's take big concepts like capitalism and break them down a bit. Because uh, which capitalism are you talking about? And also, you know, the, the capitalism of the post-war era from circa 1946 to 1975 was a very different beast. It was much more regulated. It was much more national, uh, nationally based, and therefore easier to regulate than this highly globalized, uh, financially driven capitalism that we have now. Um, and that was, of course, the other thing in the, the capitalism of the post-war 30 years after 1945 was heavily based around production, not finance, is one of the things that we've seen since the financial reforms of the 1980s. It's the financialization of capital and capitalism, uh, where you can make money without making anything. Right. To, uh, to, and this has been a long, you know, you can find, you can find references to this in Hilferding a hundred years ago and, and, and Marx before that and, and Ricardo before him. Uh, but it, it has reached a scale that, um, where finance is, is more important than production do you in believe, a lot of schemes. Do, do, you, do you believe in trickle-down economics? Do you believe that, you know, the free market whatever that means, you know, what did Chesterton say there, that the free market doesn't exist because it's never actually been tried, right? <laughs> you know, kind of like the Churchill comment about democracy and so on. Um, but do you believe in that notion that, you know, if you and I sit in our ivory well, towers the, the and analogy, make lots of money, it's going to eventually get to the people? The analogy that, is, and you, the World Bank used to use this analogy a lot, a rising tide right. raises all boats. Yes, yes. Um, well, the fact of the matter is some boats are leakier than others. Um, some boats have good anchors and some don't. Some boats have uh, trained That's helmsmen, good. others don't. Uh, some boats, there's nobody in them, you know. That's right, right. Um, listen, uh, it's very hard to find uh, an example where there was strong economic growth and everyone got and, and, and identifiable groups got worse off. There are a few examples historically. Uh, Brazil in the 1960s and early 70s had a huge growth spurt and there's pretty good evidence that things got worse for the urban working classes and, and other poor classes in Brazil at that time. There's pretty good evidence that at a certain period of the Industrial Revolution in the early mid-19th century that the working class got objectively worse off in a number of indicators in, in industrial Britain. Uh, those are the exceptions. Usually growth is either neutral to the poor or has some marginal effect in bumping them up. What's really important though is to notice that there are some forms of growth that are much more efficient in reducing poverty than others. Compare India and China over the last 30 years. India's grown a little bit slower than China, sort of five, six, seven percent, as opposed to the eight, nine, ten, eleven percent that China's grown. Uh, so that's part of the story too. But also, the Indian growth was very inefficient in reducing poverty. In technical terms, the poverty-reducing elasticity of growth was very low, uh, and that's in part because the sources of growth in India were in things that didn't employ a huge amount of labor. They were in things like IT and s services, whereas Chinese, it was manufacturing and mm -hmm. construction and infrastructure, which are employ huge numbers of people. So the same amount of growth in China got you a lot more poverty reduction than it did in India. And again, you can multiply that comparison uh, over time and space. What's key about growth is that some of it is better, certain forms of growth under certain economic regimes are better at reducing poverty than others. Key question for policy is, well, okay, how do we try to rig the conditions so that our growth is more poverty reducing? 
And Canada in the last 30 years has been spectacularly poor at that. You know, you, 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 you anchors, some boats are empty, some are leaky. I mean, you're really picking apart the analogy. Well, Was the World Bank listening? You know, to come back to our earlier comment about, you know, sitting on the other side of the table and trying to bridge the gap. Um, is it possible that sometimes the economic system or the policymakers or the councils around the world are using, you know, their, their poor analytical skills that they didn't get in the theory well, they are, theoretical um, programs that they should have been taking? I, th I, think, um, I think the World Bank is a lot different from the World Bank of 20 or 30 years ago. I think it's very different, in mm -hmm. fact. Uh, I remember 10 years ago, I went to CETA. When I was still at IDRC, I, I went to to um, CETA with my colleague Rohit Madora, who was Vice President of Programs at IDRC, and uh, Francois Bourguignon, who was then Senior Vice President and Chief Economist of the World Bank, was giving a talk at CETA about uh, the, the World Development Report. And he was talking about uh, development in terms of, in technical terms, Senian freedoms. So, I mean, he read Amartya Sen and he fully embraced this idea that growth was not everything and that issues like health and nutrition and literacy and numeracy and social cohesion and, and good quality of governance were, were important. I mean, that's not something you would have heard at the bank in 1995. Right. He said that in about, it was somewhere mid-2000s. Now, just two years ago, the World Development Report on Jobs, and one of its key authors is Gordon Betjeman, who's uh, probably the most interesting labor economist of his generation, another guy you might want to interview. Okay. He was one of the lead authors on, on that report. And basically, it turns labor market theory on its head. It's a, it's a very interesting, very important uh, report because it says jobs, we used to treat jobs as the residual, you know, uh, do the investments, make sure there's growth and jobs will follow. Well, that was a lot like trickle-down economic growth theory. Um, what Gordon and his colleagues did, and this has been peer-reviewed by a committee of nine eminent economists, including a Nobel Prize winner, uh, is that uh, he said, no, actually, you know, you should start with the jobs. If your objective is to grow employment, then start with that. And he, they found examples and policies and structures and ways that you can actually make sure that it's jobs that are driving the economic agenda, not growth that may or may not lead to jobs further down the line. And that was a World Bank report you would never have got out of them in the 80s or 90s. Or even so 15 I, I, I love these conversations because they could go anywhere. And, and I'd, I'd love to talk to you, maybe even briefly, maybe we can come back to it as well. I want to, I want to get to Zimbabwe because I yeah. think it's one of your passions. And yep, something you've been thinking about for years. And yep. let's talk about kids and health and all those wonderful things that need to be addressed. Can you just really quickly say, so in 95, you wouldn't have read that at the World Bank. And I think Never. that's great. I think it's exciting. It's not pessimistic. It's not cynical. It's hopeful. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know, maybe two of we're, we're two idealists here. We're carved from the same stone to some degree. But I'm, I'm a, I'd like to call myself a hopeful cynic, and I have many times before. Yeah, I'm, uh, a, I'm you know, a hopeful cynic and, and, and a practical optimist. Are people changing, or are people's ideas about people changing? Hmm, um, hard to say. Um, I think it, several things are at play. Uh, you know, as, as Keynes told us in, in a book called The General Theory, uh, you <laughs> know, like it's... it's uh, um, I can't interview him, can I? <laughs> no, he's, he's been dead too long. <laughs> uh, you know, in the long run, it is ideas for good or worse that, that matter. And mm. I think, mm. you know, the weight of ideas, and it's, I'm not... That's a great phrase. The, it's not just the weight of evidence, and I think there's an increasing weight of evidence behind that intuition of Amartya Sen about you know health, education, literacy, numeracy, social cohesion, social solidarity being important, being the core of development rather than increased command over commodities as represented by growth. I, you know, there's a huge weight of evidence about the importance of those things. Uh, that has built up over 30 years. But it's, you know, the, and it's also the ideas, the, the great theorists, the, the people like Keynes and about, like Amartya Sen, 
who have been banging on this for, for years, and it doesn't hurt that someone like Amartya Sen won the Nobel Prize right. in economics. Right. Uh, that definitely helps. Um, but also other eclectic uh, economists, I'm thinking of Eleanor Ostrom and John Williamson, who won in, I think, 2009 for their work on institutions, and how cooperation can evolve uh, even in the absence of uh, in, uh, central authority imposing cooperation, which is, which is a finding that you know, flies in the face of, of a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of what's taught in game theory courses in university and, and elsewhere. But, I mean, she did a lifetime to demonstrate that, you know, as long as people can talk to each other, mm. we're not condemned to the tragedy of the commons, uh, that uh, common property resources are not inevitably condemned to be over-consumed, that people can get together and work out institutions to govern them, and, and they and, do. And as ideas many. sort of press down on you, yeah. and new ideas press yeah. down on you, or, you know, Pascal said there was nothing nothing really, you know, I guess a biblical notion, I suppose, of Ecclesiastes, nothing new under the sun, but he said what is new is when you when you, when you you connect the ideas. Yes, right? yeah, absolutely. So, so in that way, people are kind of changing, I suppose, or at least their approach to development, their approach to economics, their approach to the environment well, one of the does seem to be getting better. Well, one of the really interesting things that's happened in universities, uh, not just in the Western world, but around the world, and again, the last 20 or 30 years, is we're getting out of the box that we built ourselves in the late 19th century. In the mid-late 19th century, we divided the world up into what came to be known as disciplines, academic disciplines, biology, chemistry, physics on the natural sciences, political science, sociology, economics, anthropology, psychology in the social sciences. Um, and we actually call them disciplines because to understand, you have to, the process of getting your mind around thinking like an economist is that you get disciplined to think that way. Well, it's like a vertical now, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, one of the things we've discovered is that, um, you know, the world, you know, those are convenient ways of thinking about the world for a long while, and they helped a certain amount of, of scientific progress. But nowadays, and especially in fields like public policy and international development, the problems we face don't fit neatly into any of those boxes. The problem is not just economic, it's also environmental. Uh, it's not just environmental, it's a public policy program. It's a problem, it's a problem of, of, of how we've designed our institutions. And so the solution to an environmental problem isn't just going to be introduce a new technology. Uh, it isn't going to be just market the next widget, that technology mm -hmm. to solve it. It's mm -hmm. going to be how do we create an institutional environment where that technology can, can thrive and, and be used. Um, and way, so way more, way more relational too. Well, really, it is. It's it? more relational. Cooperative, it's, integrated. It, it's cooperative. It's integrating. It's relational. It's interdisciplinary. So, in the last twenty or thirty years, you've seen a huge growth in um, things like schools of public health, uh, institutes of environmental studies, schools of international development, schools of global affairs, schools of public affairs, and in all of these. You find people from a variety of different disciplines, and often not just from social sciences, but from social and natural sciences. So that division, long artificial division, is breaking down as well. Uh, and so an institute of the environment, you'll typically find geographers and you know, oceanographers, climatologists, but economists, rural sociologists, uh, and the like. Uh, schools, I mean, my school, very concrete example, my school, International Development and Global Studies, we have, let me see, PhDs in management, political science, economics, geography, education, law, philosophy. Um, I'm sure I'm missing someone, but that right. just gives you an idea right. yeah, of the yeah. breadth within sure. my school yeah. alone. Yeah. And this, is, this, this has been the wave of the last 20, 30 years in, in academia, is that we started breaking down these disciplinary boundaries that we built in the 19th century, and we started creating actual academic units at the University of Ottawa, we call them schools, elsewhere they call them institutes, whatever, where teaching and learning is taking place in an interdisciplinary fashion because the world is just too complicated to be 
stuck into a box that's called economics or geography or political science. Tell, tell me about uh, the complicatedness, like nature of working in Zimbabwe. And, and, and you know, you, uh, you said offline to me that things really haven't changed there in, in some 25 years. Well, they have and they... <laughs> they have and they haven't? Yeah, you know, Zimbabwe is a, a deeply paradoxical country. Um, you know, for... Uh, from 1890 to, to, um, to uh, 1980, it was um, a quasi-apartheid state. It was, you know, run by and for uh, a very small white minority who did everything from rig the electoral system to rig the land ownership system to uh, building infrastructure that went, you know, build the railway so it went past the white farms and not past the black farms. Uh, you know, literally rigged the whole thing from the beginning. And then um, independence in 1980. And yes, there were important problems in Zimbabwe in that first decade after independence. There were important uh, ethnic strife and massacres in, in, in the South, I don't deny that. But overall, the government in the first 10 years of independence in Zimbabwe made some very good decisions. The number of kids in primary school doubled in a decade. The number of kids going to secondary school increased tenfold. Uh, the, they greatly expanded public health. Um, and nutrition programs and immunization programs and the results were there. The literacy rates went up, the uh, immunization rates went up, life expectancy went up, infant mortality went down, under five mortality went down. They invested quite smartly and if you read the UNICEF documents of that period, the 80s and the early 90s, and even if you read Amartya Sen's and Jean Dresse's work on Zimbabwe, very complimentary. Uh, about all this, you know, this reasoned investment in social development, in health, education, nutrition, literacy. Um, and uh, this was at a time when the rest of Africa was in crisis and a lot of these indicators in the rest of Africa were going in the opposite direction. They were getting worse in the rest of Africa, uh, for the most part. Um, then the polls reversed mm -hmm. and most of the rest of Africa improved, uh, starting in the late 90s. Um, it's not often known, but um, GDP growth in Africa for the last 15 years has been positive, even in 2009 after the recession. Uh, the African economies are growing faster than in the last 15 years than any of the major traditional donor countries have grown. Um, and other social indicators are improving in Africa, not as fast as we'd like them, but they've been improving. Problem is Zimbabwe just went into the tank. Uh, starting around the late 1990s. Uh, and they had enormous difficulties, uh, violence, um, a very violent and chaotic land reform, uh, an HIV AIDS epidemic that the government ignored for too long and didn't do enough about, um, hyperinflation, I mean the second highest rate of inflation um, that humankind has ever seen. I don't know if you saw it as you came in to my office, but on my office door, there's a $1,000 trillion <laughs> bill from okay, Zimbabwe. I, I need to get a, a selfie with that later. <laughs> I need to tweet that later. That's, right. Wait, say it again. A one? I think it's a $1,000 trillion bill. It's <laughs> hilarious. I mean, you can buy them on eBay for about 10 bucks. Wow, um, there's uh, yeah, which is just, so funny that you could buy it for 10 bucks. Uh, yes, so I know. Just, is um, that Canadian or American? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't actually gone so, on eBay. A friend of mine told so me. Lachlan, that. Is, you know, so Zimbabwe went into this, uh, you know, they got out of the, the, the trough in about 2009. They mastered the inflation. They got rid of the Zimbabwe dollar. They adopted the U.S. dollar as the currency for the country. And a measure of stability has returned, a measure of economic growth, but... For children in Zimbabwe, the, you know, the literacy rates, the immunization rates, the mortality rates are still where they were in the late 1980s. Uh, and so there's sort of 25 years, a whole generation, where the rest of Africa was making progress for most of that, and that Zimbabwe hasn't Is this a comment on yet. how interconnected all these things are, really? Is that, is that what this is about? Or is, you know, you, you are... 
you talk a lot about evidence-based. Well, some things are interconnected and some aren't. You know, when, when a, a crisis hits a country like Zimbabwe, something that deep, when you have, you know, prices literally going up a thousand percent per day, uh, you know, you know, you can't, you, you know, you can't run a school system. You can't pay public servants. Uh, you know, everything's going to go into the tank. And then add on to that an HIV/AIDS epidemic that was amongst the five worst in the world. Uh, add on to that a high degree of polarization politically, a high degree of political violence. You know, nothing's going to go well uh, when mm -hmm. the situation is that bad. Okay. Everything tends to spiral mm -hmm. downwards. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, you know, their, their next door neighbor, Zambia. When I lived in Zimbabwe in the 90s, everyone looked down at poor Zambia. Zambia had a really rough ride in the 70s and 80s. And, uh, and we in Zimbabwe like to sort of look down our noses at our northern cousins there. And, um, well, now the poles have reversed. Right. You know, and it's Zambia that, I'm not saying Zambia is heaven on earth. I'm not saying they've got out of... Uh, the, out of all their problems, but you know they've had fairly steady, decent progress for most of the last twenty years. So, so what do you do with? And I'm I'm going to say the conservative rant, and that's probably way unfair. It's polarizing, and I should know better. But the rant that says, ah, it's corruption. You know, it's. I mean, look at this guy. You know, look at what we read about this guy in the newspaper, and it's all it's all top down. And if we could get rid of, get rid of this guy, put a few new people. Few new politicians in place, everything's going to be fine. I mean, okay, massive. Listen, cor corruption's a problem in Africa, no doubt. Corruption's a problem here in Canada. Uh, corruption's a problem in the Western world. I mean, look at the financial crisis that we saw in 2008 and tell me that wasn't corruption on a grand scale. Come on. And we're all paying for it. Yeah. I mean, we in Canada, fortunately, yeah. a little less, but you know, if I were. If I were a British citizen and, you know, I had, you know, the, where my taxes were going to bail out the city of London for, for that, you know, it, it, that was corruption. Um, the case of Ireland in the, in, the, the, in the economic crisis, the biggest Irish bank when it exploded in the financial crisis, 50% of its loan book was to 10 individuals. <laughs> you know, uh, where was the regulator? Where was the chief risk officer? Where was the internal audit? Yeah, you know, check and balance. Yeah, there's, you know, this is rampant corruption and cronyism and the political class in Ireland were in it up to their teeth, you know. So, uh, yes, there's corruption in Africa, but let's not pretend that this right. is an African right. or a third world just, problem. Do you think on some level it's just... Um, uh, another way of, of absolving ourselves of some sort of moral uh, responsibility. Well, it's, it's always it's it's it, it's always good to point the finger at someone else. Right. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. and we, as I say, we, the donor countries when they go to developing countries, they tend to go with their baggage of yeah, sure. tools sure. and and their ideology, yeah. and uh, they sort of say, well, our way is the best. Well, way. I've been kind of wondering lately too with donors, some donors that I know personally, who you know, little knowledge is a dangerous thing, right? So, oh, RBM, and isn't it about impact and what, what are your outcomes you know David on this and tell mm. me more about that and and really it's 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 back to the the discipline conversation the mm. vertical it's just mm. been turned horizontal right causal logic is just disciplinary in a different way right it's a, it certainly a anyway. disciplining logic well yeah I mean I, I, I teach RBM in my results-based management in my class and and I teach the critique of it as well nice um, you know results-based management I, I I like to distinguish between three types of phenomena. There's the simple, there's the complicated, and there's the complex. Okay, RBM is really good for the simple. Okay, baking bread is simple. Okay, there's a recipe. You know, this type of flour, this type of baking soda, this much salt. Uh, you combine them in a certain way. Uh, you bake them for a certain amount of time in a tin of the right size at a certain temperature, and the result is predictable every time. Right. Uh, complicated, okay. Sending Neil Armstrong to the moon was complicated. You needed the disciplinary expertise, the skills of mathematicians, engineers, physicists, medical doctors, um, all kinds of different, you know, 16 different types of engineers, electrical, mechanical, uh, structural, etc., etc. 
and everything had to be done with very, very fine tolerances. The margins for error on everything were extremely slim. But once you had the system down, you could send a man to the moon whenever you wanted, practically. That's complicated. Complex. Raising a child is complex. <laughs> You know, every child is different. The experience you gain from the first child is only applicable to some extent to the next child. Uh, the fact of the second child changes the environment for the first child, so the initial conditions are no longer the same. You have the two children learning from each other and adapting to each other in addition to adapting to you, the parents. You now have a complex system. And a lot of the important public policy issues we deal with, financial instability in a crisis, climate change, international peace and security, to name only three top of mind issues, they're complex issues. Results-based management is great for the simple and it's great for the complicated. It's useless and dangerous for the complex. Hmm. Um, wow, I, we need more time to do another interview just on that alone. Uh, we do have to wrap it up here shortly, and I'm sorry about that. But tell me, I mean, you, I hear the passion in your voice. You spent a lot of time on the ground. Your whole life has been about uh, um, the splash and ripple effect. How's that? <laughs> sorry about the RBM-like uh, metaphor there. But why, pray tell, why the heck do you care? It sounds like you really do. This is not I, just an exercise for you. No, this it's is not, not just, just an exercise for me. This is not another publication. No, I don't know. Right? I, uh, I, uh, I credit my grade two primary school teacher, Mrs. Wow. Campbell. Yeah. That's awesome. What's yeah. her name? Mrs. Campbell. I Mrs. Forget Campbell. Her, forget her first name. Grade I two? never knew. Grade two. I think mine was I, Mrs. I, Pruder. If I you can dedicated that. my PhD thesis to her. Oh, and that's she, awesome. Um, Very she, she had taught in Guatemala. Okay. Uh, and she had slides of this little village at the foot of a volcano in Guatemala and she got me interested in this stuff and I never stopped being interested in foreign countries Amazing. in geography and in, wow. uh, intercultural issues um, I credit her that's amazing I mean I, I don't know of a better way to end uh, our interview I mean my whole sort of projects about the little things you know the domino effect, mm. you know, we're all one domino, mm. we can knock another mm. one down. We've all got a role to play, our part to play. The little things make a big difference and so on. But wow, Mrs. Campbell, uh, who, uh, I mean, not alive today? I have no idea. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Isn't <laughs> I have no that idea. the point? Mm. Isn't that marvelous? Mm. That in a way, you don't even know. And I think uh, the impact that we all play mm. every day, the handshakes, mm the classrooms were in front of and so on. I think it's remarkable. Lachlan, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. And, uh, My pleasure. Lachlan Monroe, uh, the Director of the School of International Development and Global Studies. Please check out the University of Ottawa's program online. We'll have lots of info for you. I, I, yeah, we'll do, we'll do an interview. Uh, we'll do another one for sure. Okay, yeah, I look future. forward to it. Yeah, thank you. Lachlan.